0: Almighty Father, as we come before you on this Sabbath day, the day you have created for rest and for focus on you, we're so grateful we can come together as a body to worship and honor you. For We know that times are coming, this may not be possible. So we pray, Almighty Yahweh, now that you'll bless this gathering, help us to understand your word better, that we might become closer followers of you. We pray that you would bless those that have a special need be your Yahweh, Rafa, for those who are sick, those who have a, a problem, an issue that they need help with, that you would be their guide in their stay. So we pray Almighty Yahweh now that you'll be with us through the rest of this service and this day as we honor you and your Sabbath. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Uh... We well, you know biblical evangelism as I guess we all know, involves taking the truth to the world and not hoarding it ourselves. It's a lesson we learn from both the books of Numbers and Acts in Scripture. Both have intriguing parallels with each other. Numbers details the walk of Israel away from the sin of Egypt into a new land. And as they did, they brought a new faith to that area. The book of Acts shows Peter and Paul taking the truth out to the world. A new area for new truth. One book is about living there. The other is about worshiping there. And either way, the truth was taken to other nations so that Yahweh's word can spread and grow. Both books show through many examples how to live scripturally. They give us insight into the lives of various believers. find that especially in the book of Acts. Both show the actions of apostates, and both have important lessons to learn through the acts and the lives of the believers. You might call the book of Numbers the Acts of Israel, and the book of Acts, Numbers Revisited. The uh, the book of Numbers bridges the time gap between Sinai, when they got the law, and entering the promised land in the book of Joshua. Numbers begins where the book of Exodus leads off and takes us from there to the promised land. Just as a drama is often played in three concurrent uh, acts, Numbers has three major themes, the law and various aspects of worship that Israel was taught and tried to practice the best they could, although kind of failing many times including the consecration of the temple. Israel's leadership struggles in the march to the promised land are another part of the book of Numbers. And preparation for taking of the promised land, the boundaries are set and the final instructions are given. Well, as Numbers closes, Israel is poised to possess their inheritance. As the book of Acts closes, without a formal ending, the book opens for many, to come in to the covenant as well, to take possession of the promises of the new covenant. Numbers is referred to many times in the New Testament. Paul called special attention to numbers in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 2. The words are significant. When He says all these things happen to them for examples, for us. All these things happen for us, and yet people say, we don't need the Old Testament. (laughs) How many times are we... The Old Testament confirmed and affirmed in the New Testament by what the writers wrote. It's, it's astounding to come along and say, well, we're, in, we're a new covenant now. We don't, we don't worry about that old covenant. In Romans 11.22, Paul speaks about the goodness and severity of Yahweh. And that is, in a nutshell, the message of numbers, I think. The goodness of Yahweh when they followed him, the harshness of Yahweh when they were when they turned against him and uh, had to be reprimanded. The severity of Yahweh is seen in the death of the old generation in the wilderness who never entered the promised land. All those 20 years and older who were not allowed into the promised land. The goodness of Yahweh is realized in the new generation. They got to partake of the new land. Yahweh protected and provided for them until they possessed the land and could fend for themselves. And no matter how strong the enemy, no matter how difficult the situation became, how tough the journey, no matter how difficult our struggles, Yahweh's always there to help us overcome. Always there. Truly trusting Yahweh means obeying him, even when we may not quite understand completely, we don't have the whole act together, but we trust him. Yahweh corrects disobedience, but even in judgment, he has mercy for ignorance. Today, I want to examine two notable events in in numbers that hold important lessons for us today, two notable events that stand out in this book. I chose them because they perfectly reflect our own natural tendencies and our typical response to difficult situations and those situations we may face in the future. It's been said that the true measure of man is what he does when the heat is on and nobody's looking. In Numbers 11, Israel was doing what people typically do when they lack creature comforts and strong spiritual convictions. On top of it, they started complaining. We all read about that. They complained to Moses. Indications in verse 1 are that they were not just grumbling about an inconvenience or a hardship, they were actually turning back in their spiritual walk, turning back the other way. So Yahweh sent a rod of correction. Yahweh says, I'll give you winers, your desserts. And when the people complained, it displeased Yahweh, and Yahweh heard it, and his anger was kindled. And the fire of Yahweh burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. Yahweh doesn't, doesn't cotton to that kind of behavior, especially after all he had done for Israel through this walk all that he had done. What was the problem? Well, they weren't eating gourmet. Isn't that amazing? They were living on manah, the what's it, and longing for the old days of garden variety vegetables. So they added this to their growing list of petty complaints. There once was a visitor who came to the Feast of Tabernacles, and all he did was complain because we didn't have enough free food. He wasn't pleased with what we offered. He came for the wrong reasons. If we can't give up some physical amenities to partake in the spiritual blessings of Yahweh, then we're not ready for the kingdom. And that's the whole lesson of life for the believer. We constantly look back to the comforts of sin we came out of. If we do, then the kingdom will not be ours. It's a lesson in numbers as well, see so, how you know, many people live to eat rather than eat to live, rather than hearts aimed on the heavenly israel 's minds were in the dirt. What, would, what did they want? Do you remember what they asked for? What they said? They wanted cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions that 's what they wanted. all those things that grow down in the dirt that 's where their minds were. Israel couldn 't stomach the pure bread or manna that Yahweh gave them. They wanted a delectable mixture of earthly things, and so it is today. Many cannot accept the word as it is, but they want to mix a lot of other stuff with it. False doctrines, traditions that aren't scriptural. They want to mix it all up to make it more palatable for them. The straight word is a little too tough for them, so they want to add to it. The pristine, adulterated word is not enough. They want to pick and choose from the smorgasbord of all sorts of goodies, comfortable traditions, and easy teachings. Notice how they manipulated the manna, verse 8. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills or beat it in mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. Well, that's fine. But they couldn't eat it straight. You know, the whole idea was they had to manipulate it a little bit. I uh, kind of compare this to unleavened bread. And we do the same thing, don't we, a little bit? Put a little peanut butter on it or uh, whipped cream. I don't know, whatever. Uh, but we do that the same way. And it, it does help the, the taste. But uh, the lesson here is, is, is not that. The lesson here is not being happy with what you're getting. Moses is at wit 's end he can 't handle the wayward sheep numbers eleven fourteen i 'm not able to bear all this people alone because it 's too heavy for me, and if you deal thus with me, kill me. I pray thee out of hand. if I found favor in your sight and let me not see my wretchedness he 's had it he couldn't he could think about it i mean i don't think we understand the full the full power of what he had to go through, the the poor, the full uh, just dealings with Israel and all that it meant. He's had enough. The volatility had reached critical mass. Moses says, I had it. I I can't do it anymore. I, I can't even imagine this guy getting the full brunt of their complaints and problems and all that. He says, Yahweh, if this continues, just put me out of my misery. I've had it. And I don't see how he survive this long. Imagine camping for forty years in the wilderness with three million complainers and whiners. Can you do that? I can't. And his complaint department had to be ten miles long. All every day, that's all he did was receive a complaint, receive a complaint, fix it, Moses, fix it. I'm not happy. There you are, out in the wilderness, no comforts of home, even though they had zero comforts as slaves in Egypt, and it was even worse because they were forced to work. That's the irony of it all. See, man has a short memory. We all have basically short memories. I don't know if you've talked with somebody you, you uh, met recently that you knew years past, and they bring up some things that they remember about you. And you I don't remember that. I Really? Did that happen? Yeah, well, yeah, I was there. I mean, you were there. But we have short memories. And imagine when you don't want to have a memory, then you really have a short memory. So anyway, here he is. There were children. There were elderly. There were livestock to take care of. And all of them had special needs, you know. It's too hot. It's too cold. They're worried about their situation. They're worried about the enemies over the hill. Um, they, they have no trust in Yahweh, basically, most of the time. They have many added trials and problems beyond just day-to-day issues like we have. You know, we all have issues, but we get past them. And you, Moses, must fix it all and make all the bad stuff go away. Solve all the petty problems of 2 to 3 million people, a group the size of Chicago, and see what he had to deal with. Yahweh knows Moses can no longer handle it. Choose 70 men to help solve the problems. Numbers eleven seventeen. 17, Yahweh will divide up the Holy Spirit bestowed on Moses to give to these 70 others so that they can have extra help, spiritual help, to deal with it. So in verses 18 to 20, when they were complaining that they were so tired of this manna that they want meat, they want meat. And so Yahweh says, you're gonna get meat. Meat, meat, and more meat. A month of meat every day till you choke on it. Besides that, he sent a plague on them, even while they were eating, and many died. This is one of the reasons I don't usually complain too much about food. But uh I just live and just grin and bear it half the time. Not that I need to, because Margie's a pretty good cook. Gotta <laughs> yeah, stick that in there. No, but she is. She's really good. Here they were eating the most nutritious food on earth, supplied by the one who designed their own bodies. Think about it. Manna had everything. That's all they needed to eat. I mean, it wasn't just crackers. It was full of vitamins and minerals and everything they needed to have a healthy existence. I would have loved just, just to taste that and see what it's really like. They reject the nourishment that comes from the word that will grow them spiritually into the kingdom itself. That's basically what they were doing. In a spiritual sense, and in verse twenty-four, Moses calls the seventy assistants to gather around the tabernacle and receive the Holy Spirit. In verse twenty-five, we find that those with the Spirit prophesied. The Hebrew word means foretold future events, just like we understand prophecy to be. These couple guys in that bunch uh, started prophesying. This is what happens in Acts two as well, if you remember. When the Holy Spirit is given, and men began to speak the wonderful words of Yahweh. Now comes a peculiar incident with a future counterpart. Joshua, who's going to succeed Moses one day as leader, is afraid that two of the fellows with the Spirit, Eldad and Medad, who hung around prophesying, would eclipse the influence of Moses. He wanted them stopped. Moses, tell them to stop. His response, should not all men have this ability with Yahweh's spirit? Should not all men be able to teach Yahweh's word when they have the spirit? Well, here Moses mirrors Yahshua, said to Mark 9, that if someone does miraculous things, like throwing out a demon in his name, that person is on his side. He's on Yahshua's side and should not be stopped, as John wanted wrongly to do himself. Now we move to chapter 12, and with the opening up of leadership to share with the 70 that we saw in chapter 11, we now have Moses' position threatened. Threatened by the probably the most, I don't know what you would say, difficult threat he could possibly receive. He's threatened by his very brother and sister in his authority. The age-old desire for power. I want to read uh, chapter 12, verse 1. And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. They didn't like that. And they said, has Yahweh indeed spoken only by Moses? Has he not spoken also by us? And Yahweh heard it. See what they're trying to do? They're trying to usurp authority. And they found a way. They found a pivot point where they could actually accuse Moses. Well, she... In my studies, I find out she was a Kushite, an Arabian, and not really an Ethiopian. Maybe she was called that in scorn by by, uh, his sister and brother. Miriam is listed first in this... uh, Rebellion because she was the prime instigator. She's the one who suffered from Yahweh's anger. So obviously, she was, you know, she was the one. And so, she's the first woman to be called a prophetess. Exodus fifteen twenty, meaning an inspired woman. She had some authority. Well, sure she did. She was also a leader of the women, and therefore already a member of the government. It was her. It was Moses, and it was Aaron. In fact, Micah 6.4 lists Miriam, Aaron, and Moses as being sent to rescue Israel. So they already had, his brother and sister already had some authority, but that wasn't enough. Kind of like old Hasatan. He wanted more. He wanted to usurp Yahweh, rise up above him. This issue with Zipporah, Zipporah is reminiscent of Sarah's problem with Hagar. It's a jealousy thing. And a narcissistic thing. And they said, Hath Yahweh indeed spoken only by Moses? Has he not spoken also by us? Don't we have some authority around here? And Yahweh heard it. Doesn't it remind you of old Slewfoot? The desire for control destroys at every level. We see it all the way through governments, assemblies, relationships, it arises from pride which is the root of sin itself. Satan says, I'll rise up and be like the Most High. That's prideful. Moses, on the other hand, was meek, meaning humble. He was depressed, afflicted. You think you have problems. He was the most depressed and afflicted man, depressed and afflicted man on earth. But he also had the patience of Job. And now he had to endure the accusations of even his own brother and sister. He didn't resent the injury done to him, nor complain of it to Yahweh, nor make any appeal to him. But Yahweh resented what Miriam and Aaron were doing. You see, Yahweh hears all that we say. We may, you know, but Yahweh hears it. You're not holding anything back from him. He hears everything we say. And so it's the reason we should always watch our words. One day we're going to give account of all we say. Matthew 12, 36, but I say unto you, Yahshua said, but every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Idle word is something said with little care or th- a forethought. You just blurt it out Then you say, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. And you got backtrack and apologize if necessary. But we've all done that. We've all said things afterwards we wish we could take back. Words that cut are ultimately... Uh, made us look like the fool kind of like a bad disease the best cure for loose lips is to avoid it entirely to begin with think before you speak ask yourself what will be the consequences do I really need to say this and then back off will it help or hurt how will others respond most importantly is it what a child of Yahweh would be saying and what if we are on the receiving end of a nasty comment? In Psalm thirty-eight thirteen, David says, Of those who speak evil of him, I heard not, for you will hear. Now, what did he mean by that? He's speaking about to Yahweh. I'm not going to respond, but you will hear. In other words, the more silent we are in our own cause, the more Yahweh will come to our defense. That's all we need. The accused innocent needs to say little when he knows the judge himself is going to be his advocate. What, what do you have to say? Just walk away. If it's bad, walk away. So now Yahweh speaks suddenly. He has no tolerance for this rebellion. Chapter 12, verse 5. And Yahweh came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forth. And he said, hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently and not in dark speeches, and the similitude of Yahweh shall he behold. Wherefore, then, were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Basically, it's almost tantamount to you're speaking to Moses. I'm right there, and you had the gall to accuse him as much as they didn't want to recognize it. Moses did have unique calling. they didn't speak against Moses as President of Israel; they spoke against Moses as servant of the Most High. It was not that Moses was beyond criticism he he was you no know, he's not the perfect man, nobody is perfect except Joshua. Moses was not simply obeyed and praised and never confronted or asked the tough questions. In fact, another relative, his father-in-law Jethro, did confront Moses about an issue and asked some tough questions, and he was greatly used by Yahweh for doing that. So, Moses wasn't above criticism. Of course not. But Miriam and Aaron should have been afraid to speak against Moses because their criticism was so petty. It was a Fait complete. There's nothing they could have done about it. He was married to her. What are you going to do about it? You're just milding off a bunch of words just to get even or something. I don't know. It was ridiculous. Some things cannot be changed. Then just leave them alone. Miriam and Aaron should have been afraid to speak against Moses because their criticism was simply not true. Moses wasn't a proud man. He was the kind who would just sit and take it, you know. With the most humble man on earth. Miriam and Aaron should have been afraid to speak against him because their criticism was prompted by their own self-interest. They were envious of Moses and they wanted some comeuppance of some type, some of his authority. Well, the, uh, Yahweh's response was quick. Verse 10, And the cloud departed from the tabernacle and, behold, Miriam became leprous. White as snow... And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. Then in verse 11, And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my master, I beseech you, lay not the sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly, and wherein we have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, of whom the flesh is half consumed, when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses, in his largesse, of course, his his, his grace, cried unto Yahweh, saying, Heal her now, O Yahweh, I beseech you. And Yahweh then, of course, healed her. And Yahweh said unto Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that, let her be received in again. And she was shut out seven days, and the people journeyed not till... Miriam was brought in again and afterward the people removed and kept going down the road. Many lessons for the believer here. Many things we can all learn. The spiritual parallels this chapter in, uh teaches its own lessons. Moses, as the ordained leader of the assembly of Israel, represents Yahshua the Messiah. He brings the people out of Egypt of sin which we review every Passover, destroying the king of Egypt, who represents Satan. He's the one Yahweh works through to bring Israel through their trials and testings while leading them to Yahweh in the promised land through uh, uh, obedience to Yahweh's commands. So Miriam then represents the assembly and how the assembly acts sometimes which is what a woman typically characterizes in scripture. She suffers the punishment of leprosy in corruption of the flesh, what corrupts the individual. She's healed only through the power of Almighty Yahweh seven days later, seven days of cleansing. She's restored to health again. So here we have a very uh, very powerful lesson, I think, in how we, we should be. Aaron, as the high priest, also represents the ministry, specifically apostate ministry. He listens to what the the people want. He listens to what they preach and does what they want, not what Yahweh commands. And the assembly ultimately must confess their sin to Yahweh through Yahshua. Moses had vision. He had foresight. He had the characteristics of a great leader, and he was strong in that. He saw the big picture, and it was this spirit-inducing farsightedness that really sustained him. They gave him the strength as well as the spirit. Kept him going when all the others in Israel saw only departure and failure. I'm reminded of the uh, brave train conductor. Two railroad tracks ran parallel. One day, workmen were drawing the trunk of an enormous tree across them. They got it past the first track and uh, then the chain broke. And a smaller train came by, just escaped it. The conductor knew that there was a big express train coming down the pike, and he, he had to do something. He couldn't get that thing off the track, so he ran ahead down the tracks, acting like a crazy man, going like nuts, gesticulating, extremely uh, wild, waving his hands and yelling and screaming. But it was enough to get the express train conductor to put the brakes on the train to heed the strange warning. Shut her down right in front of the great tree. And as the conductor looked into the eyes of some of the grateful faces that he had saved, it didn't matter that they thought he was a maniac. The whole thing was, it worked. He saved those people. I guess the lesson here is don't let it bother you because you may be considered odd. You may be considered a little off key, off the bubble. When you call on Yahweh's name, when you keep his days like the tabernacles we just enjoyed. Because someday the naysayers will, with crystal clear vision, look you right in the eyes and say, you were right. You were right. Well, now on to chapter 13, the account of Israel's initial probe into the promised land, teaches one of the most powerful lessons of scripture. Verse 17 of chapter 13. And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said unto them, get you up out of the way southward and go up into the mountain and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwell there. Find out what they're about, whether they be strong or weak or few or many or what, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good land or bad land and what cities they be that they dwell in whether in tents or in strongholds and so forth the instruction is go check it out check it out so he, they sent messengers to spy out the land he sent men so they did they went and they checked it out they found that the land was rich and produced wonderful crops just beautiful land produce unbelievable they checked it out for 40 days, came back with a glory report of its richness, milk and honey, just like you said, it would be a land of milk and honey. We could live there, but there is a problem. The people there were invincible. They were giants. There's no way. There's no way we can conquer them. They're Goliath-like. Well, verse 30, we get a different report. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, we're not going to be able to do that. We can't go against those people. They're stronger than we are. No way. The virus is too strong. Stay where you are. Hunker down, they said. Yahweh says, Go and keep my feast. Trust in me. And it was decision time for Yahweh's people. We had a great feast. Yahweh held off the virus. In fact, Marge and I and some others caught it afterward and found out it was nothing. It was nothing. Mild symptoms. It was a breeze, basically. Yahweh is good. Remember, verse 2 says, Yahweh is giving this land to Israel. Shouldn't be an issue. If he's on their side, neither is it for those today who trust in him. Fourteen of uh, Numbers. And all the congregation lift up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would Elohim that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would Elohim we had died in the wilderness? And wherefore hath Yahweh brought us into this land, to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be his prey, were it not better for us to return to Egypt. That's the power of negativism. We've got to go back. We've got to go back. So you're going to, they're thinking about finding a guy, a leader, to bring them back. That's what they did. That's their reaction. Too much. That's the power of negativism. They can just tie you up in knots. A shoe salesman was sent to a remote country. When he arrived, he was dismayed because everyone around was barefooted. He wired the company, no no prospect for any sales here. People don't wear shoes. Later, another shoe salesman went to the same territory. He, too, immediately sent word to the home office. But this message was different. Great potential. People don't wear shoes here. Winston Churchill, a pessimist, sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. You know, the believer never gets strong in faith if his faith is never exercised, if he never does what he knows he must do and then does it. When we undergo personal trials or tests in the assembly, that's the perfect opportunity we can grow. Chapter 14, verse... uh, Six, I kind of skipped this one. I want to, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. They spake unto the company of the children of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If Yahweh delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel, rebel not, against Yahweh neither fear ye the people of the land for they are bread for us their defense has departed from them and Yahweh is with us fear them not you know when they 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 marched around Jericho you know seven days and then blew the trumpets and said the walls came tumbling down Uh, I've read other uh, accounts who think that the walls went straight down which always makes perfect sense because then they could run through and, and take the city. If you, you've got to stumble over big high blocks and you know, concrete and, and uh, granite and so forth, it's going to be hard. But uh, those walls were nothing. Yahweh could take care of them. No problem. If he had faith in him, Joshua and Caleb did. But they were looking at the negative side well, he just brought us out here to destroy us. Remember what I said about short memories? How could they say that? How could they say that? How many proofs did they need? Think about it. Exodus 14, 11, divided the Red Sea, destroying the Egyptian army. Exodus 15, Moses made the bitter water sweet at Marah. Exodus 16, Yahweh gives them miraculous bread from heaven to eat exodus 16 again fulfilling the command not to let the manna sit uneaten when it rotted so you better get out and do it or it rotted just as yahweh said exodus 17 water out of the rock exodus thirty-two, ten commandments and lesson of the golden calf and what yahweh did there numbers 11 the plague of fire because of their complaining numbers 11 again the quail that yahweh brought because they wanted meat Here at Kadesh, Numbers 14.2, again, more miracles, more miracles. These 10 miracles and proofs don't even take into account the 10 plagues that it took to get them released from Egypt. How many more miracles do you need? How much more do you need to believe Yahweh? Boggles the mind, I guess. I don't know, but I hope we would be a little different if we were there. It was the faith that was lacking in most of those people. It was faith. So Yahweh calls us out in a similar way and given us promises peculiar to his saints, promises that if we follow him, he will bless us both now and in the future. Do we have the faith to continue with it? No matter what the trial comes or obstacles we face. A lack of faith led to Israel's lack of bravery. It reduced them to weak people afraid of the unknown. When they had Yahweh standing right behind them, they were still afraid of the unknown. Centuries ago, during one of the most turbulent of the desert wars in the Middle East, a spy was captured and sentenced to death by a general of the Persian army. The general, a man of intelligence and compassion, had adopted a strange and unusual custom in such cases. He permitted the condemned man to make a choice. The prisoner could either face the firing squad or go through the black door. As the moment of the execution drew near, the general ordered the spy to be brought before him for a short final interview. Mainly to get his answer. What's it going to be? Firing squad or the black door? This was a troubling decision, and the prisoner hesitated, but soon made it known he much preferred the firing squad to the unknown horror that awaited behind the black door. A volley of shots in the courtyard announced that the grim sentence had been carried out. The general, staring at his boots, turned to his aide and said, you see how it is with men? They will always prefer the known way to the unknown. People fear the unfamiliar. Still, I gave them a choice. Well, what lies behind the black door, as aide said? Freedom, the general responded. And I've known only a few brave men who would take it. Israel could not see the outcome of their battles with the inhabitants of Canaan. They just didn't have the foresight. They didn't have the faith. That's all it was. They really had to go on the promises of Yahweh. That's all they really had to go on because these people were... You know, they were fearsome people in Canaan and a lot of them, a lot of different, a lot of different nations there ready to pounce on them. But again, destroying the Egyptian army, the biggest, greatest army at that time was not enough for them. 20 plus miracles were not enough. They still feared. From the time they left Egypt, it all boiled down to their faith or their lack of their faith. First Corinthians 10 verse 1 and I'll close this part of the uh, this part of the message here 1 Corinthians 10 Paul wrote and we mentioned it when we started off uh, something significant about what happened there in in with Israel. Moreover brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, that rock was Messiah. But with many of them Yahweh was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples, These things are for us to read and get strength by, to learn by, and become better followers of Yahweh. For our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things, and they also lusted, as they also lusted, neither should we be idolaters as some of them were, Uh, neither should we commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day 20,000. Neither let us tempt Messiah as some of them. Neither murmur you as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. All these things happened unto them. He says it again for examples. And they are written for our admonition. Our admonition. Oh, and look at this last part. Upon whom the ends of the world are come. This is us. Upon whom the ends of the world are come. We're, we're close as anybody's ever been. It's for us, brethren. Therefore, let him think that he stands. Take heed lest he fall. Well, it was a type of baptism that the Israelites went through in, in the Red Sea. We have a baptism today. Happy time. We have another special treat this Sabbath. In Acts 2... Peter was seeking from the crowd their commitment to Almighty Yahweh when he said, repent and be baptized. Two phases, two parts of it. Repent first and then be baptized. Repentance as a noun in the New Testament is a Greek metanoia, and it means to make all things right. It means to change what's wrong in your life and make it right. It entails a complete change in heart and mind to think and live completely differently from this point on. The work of Yahweh's spirit is key in repentance. Before going down into the waters of baptism, we have to commit to a change in our life through repentance. Our past life is gone, basically. We give up the old carnal nature for good. We bury it in a watery grave. From the moment we come up out of the water, we're a new creation, living a new life. Completely cleansed of our past. I, I tell people who just came out of the waters, I said, you know what? If Yasha came back right now, you're in. You're in because you have no sin. He would have to choose you to be part of his kingdom. Sin has to be absolved, has to be resolved, has to be, has to be overcome. Not that we aren't going to sin from here on, but we have an advocate with the Father when we do. So we repent of our old carnal nature, completely cleansed of all those past sins. He can't hold that against us now in judgment. But now the future is different. Now we have to change our life. True obedience can begin once we fully repent and are immersed into Yahshua's name, have the laying out of hands of the ministry and are granted the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3.27, Paul says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Messiah, have put on Messiah. It's like putting Yahshua on now to be your protector and your guide and everything that that you want, everything you focus on from this point on. Baptism marks just the beginning of a new spiritual walk. Just the beginning of a road trip you're going to take, hopefully, the rest of your life, honorably and and justly for Yahweh. So we give up the ways of the world and start to grow in obedience, faith, and knowledge. You commit to keeping all of Yahweh's statutes as he commands, including the Sabbath, the feasts, because now we're doing what Yahshua did. We follow his example. That's what he did. And then you help others to have that inner joy in the hope of resurrection too when you do So we have a true seeker today who has these desires to commit to living for Yahweh through Yahshua, and so now it's my delight to call forward Raquel Vaughn, who's traveled a long way to be here, and she would come forward and uh, stand before I have uh, some confirmation of her commitment here, some questions we want to ask her. And we're so grateful, hallelujah, for your coming today. So, Raquel, have you repented of your sins? Hallelujah. Do you accept Yahshua the Messiah, Savior and Ruler in your life? And do you now renounce Satan with his fatally destructive ways and the sinful pleasures of this world? Hallelujah. Do you enter this day into the new covenant with Yahweh, through the name and blood of Yahshua, to be faithful until the end? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And are you willing to work with the brethren of Yahweh's assembly to aid all sincere seekers of truth to find a path to everlasting life? Hallelujah. Let's all please rise. Almighty Father, we come before you at this time. We're so grateful. We're so blessed. We're so joyful to see a person who has decided to change her life for you to dedicate her life to you, to put away the old life, the life of sin, and from now on, walk in the path of righteousness. We're so grateful that we can see this as a witness to us and to the many who are also might be contemplating this step in their life. May their spirit be moved as well. So we thank you for Raquel, and we pray that you will guide her in her life, that She can be a witness to many, and that others will see her good works and glorify the Father. And so we pray, Almighty Yahweh, now that you be with us now through the rest of this service, that we would do things according to your word. And in Yahshua's name we pray. Hallelujah.